listening to episode 25 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the Legion of Superheroes and the Golden Age Adam. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my first guest on this special episode comes all the way from across the pond from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, it's Martin Gray. Welcome to the show, Martin. Hello there, Ryan. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for being this. And now, correct me, is it proper to call you Sir Martin throughout this episode? Because that's what I feel like I should do. No, just Martin is fine. Thanks so much. All right. Well, if I if I slip up and call you sir anyway, just uh, take that as a compliment. Ah, cheers. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not sure if your side of the Atlantic has heard the news, but over here, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And as I mentioned on a previous episode, nine of those stories were devoted to the Legion of Superheroes in some way or another. But the story that we're going to focus on tells the story of the group's founding, the original core team. So, Martin, how and when did you first discover the Legion? It was a long time ago, probably 1972. I've been trying to put my finger on it. I'm 51 now, so then I would have been eight years old. And I used to babysit for a lady across the road called Lynette, which I realise is shocking, babysitting at the age of eight. (laughs) But for my trouble, which was no trouble, I would get 50 pence, I would get an awful lot of sweeties, candy, (laughs) and I would get, courtesy of her brother who'd given up on comics, about a pile of 100 comics every week from the early early 1960s. Wow. All DC comics of Lois Lane, Superman, Jimmy Olsen, Justice League, Adventure Comics, Superboy. And it was just such a wonderful treat every single week for months. And in there was an awful lot of Legion comics, well, Adventure Comics. And I believe my first was Adventure Comics 310, The Doom of the Superheroes, in which the heroes started getting killed by a mysterious villain one by one. And it was like, my gosh, they're getting killed. This is so serious. And then Superboy figures out that it's actually a future descendant, yes, of Mr. Mixie's Pitlick killing them all. Everyone comes back to life. And it really, really piques my interest for reading more Legion comics. Whew, that is quite a babysitting gig. Like, if that was my job when I was a kid, I would never want to grow up. 
<laughs> oh, I know. It was such a treat. And again, you could ask my wife. She'd say, I never did. But... Oh, bless her. <laughs> well, I have, I have made this confession before on the podcast and on other shows that I have never been a big fan of the Legion. I just, I never found that gateway. I read the series that came out around the time of Infinite Crisis when Mark Wade was writing it, and I read it just on the strength of his writing. I loved him, and I enjoyed the heck out of those books, but when it was over, I didn't feel the pull to go out and seek out these characters again. And then... You know, when I started doing more research for this, when I had to research for Shadow Lass a couple episodes ago, I started looking into more Legion books, but there was still always this thing. I was like, ah, I just, they're not really connecting. But when it came down, I, I knew that I had to read more for this story because we're going to be talking about the origin of the Legion, the whole team concept. And I, I danced around. I, I read their first appearance in Adventure Comics 247 with, with Superboy meeting them. And I was like, all right, it was a cute story. It didn't do as much for me. I read a little bit of their later series around like the five years later and still had this problem connecting with them. But I knew all of the comic book lists that say, that, you know, the greatest stories of all time. Everybody says the best Legion story was that Great Darkness Saga by Paul Levitz and Keith Giffen. So I said, all right, I got the book. I started reading it earlier this week, and I really, really like it. And for the first time, I'm, it feels like, I'm like, I don't know what it is about that, but it's just I'm connecting with the characters a little bit more. And it helps me appreciate this origin story that we're going to talk about a little bit more. And I'm, I, I feel like I've got my, my inroad now, and I'm, I'm becoming a Legion fan just through, through this exposure. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah, I'm not surprised because with the Great Darkness Saga, you're pretty much getting the best version of the Legion in their best period. So I'm not surprised that's actually finally connecting with you a little. Yeah, it's a combination of, I think Levitz was really on his game when he was writing. I, I really liked the dual combination. You know, some of the art was by Pat Broderick, who was great. And then it was it was Keith Giffen before he kind of indulged in some of his crazier artistic flourishes. But yeah, good stuff, good stuff there. So I mentioned the the Legion's first appearance was in Adventure Comics 247, which came out back in 1958. Folks, this is a super team for all intents and purposes that predates the Justice League of America. This is one of the oldest super teams in comics. And now, I mean, Diablo Frank once said, you know, that three people hardly makes a Doom Patrol. Uh, and certainly, when this started out, three heroes, three teenagers, hardly makes for a legion. But the way the team bulked out over the years, it's it, you really get that sense of scale when you see group shots, and there's 30 characters or more. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about this. But did you kind of have like a favorite, like a, a character or, a, or or an era that you sort of connected with? I think my favourite era was at the time of when Levis and Giffen were at their peak, you know, around about the Great Darkness Saga and afterwards, right through till it got a bit strange when Giffen was doing his more experimental work on the, the Ormond, when the Ormond came along in about the 310, something like that. But I absolutely, I love different periods so much. I mean, I love the original, the original ones drawn by John, John Fort and then by Kurt Swan. I love a lot of the 
sort of post-Zero Hour Legion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the Abnett and Lanning Legion. And I, mean, I love the Legion so much that in the 1990s, when I was working as an editor for British Comics, reprinting DC Comics, I was able to start a comic called Heroes. It was a weekly, and it didn't last very long. But I started with the, the Legion of Superheroes out of about issue 284, the issues leading up to the Great Darkness Saga. And in British comics, I don't think so much in American comics, in the first three issues, we would always give free gifts to the readers. So for the free gifts for these ones, we we came up with some special postcards based on Legion covers. And it was just such a fun thing to do. Cool. But, yeah, it was fun. And again, that was representing different periods of the comics history. Oh, that sounds great. Great. Well, Secret Admirers, we're going to take a quick promotional break, but afterwards, Martin is going to tell you all about the secret origin of the Legion of Superheroes. Don't go away. I got a bad feeling about this. You'd be feeling a lot better, Han, if you were listening to Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast hosted by me, Ryan Daly. That doesn't sound too hard. It's not hard. You just check out Dead Boffin Spies on iTunes, Facebook, or the blog page, deadboffinspies.blogspot.com. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Well, I, I don't know if terror is an appropriate description. It's a podcast that combines everything you love about me talking and some of what you love about Star Wars. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Fine, whatever. Do that after you listen to Dead Boffin Spies. Yoda. You seek Yoda. No, you seek Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast. Check it out. It beats kissing a Wookiee, I would think. <laughs> Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things they do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Try to dig what we all s- say. I'm not trying to cause a big s- s- sensation. I'm just talking about my t- t- generation. Secret Origins issue 25 had a cover date of April 1988, but the issue would have hit the streets on December 15, 1987, the last issue of the series to come out that year. At this point, 26 issues of Secret Origins had come out counting the first annual, and this podcast managed to get through them in only six months. The cover to issue 25 shows members of the Legion studying holograms of several Golden Age heroes, including the original Adam, who we'll hear more about later on in this episode. The cover was provided by the legendary art team of Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. What do you think of the cover, Martin? I like it a lot, and I think it's actually a lovely touch that they got Kurt Swan in to draw it, given that he drew the first ever image that people would have seen of the Legion on Adventure Comics 247. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think the cover would be better without the addition of the Earth One Hawkman and the Batman Shadow. I think they're just cluttering it up a little bit. And the floating interlac. I was trying to read it. I've never been very good at translating this 30, 30th century language. I looked up on three different interlac guides. Didn't work. I got in touch with friends in the Legion of Substitute Heroes Facebook group, and they tell me it doesn't say anything. It's just pretendy interlac. <laughs> I, I do like it. And another nice touch, I, I like that... Uh, Cosmic Boys holding a leaflet which indicates they're in the Space Museum, which of course turns up in Secret Origins number 50, I think it is, in that's the final issue. It's the right, it's the last story of the series. Oh, wow, that's a nice touch indeed. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, I, I, there's, sorry, a, there's a little bit of symmetry too with this being issue 25 and that being issue 50. It's kind of. Yeah, Mark Ware, the editor, had it all planned out. <laughs> He must have, considering this was like his second book editing. He did well, and he just obviously, being such a big Legion fan, he made sure we had the Legion in regularly after this, and it was good for us Legion fans too. Yeah. I, I like the idea of the cover. It's, it's kind of strange and, and funny to see the Legion, who was one of the most popular, important groups in comics at this time, really DC's one of their tentpoles, and seeing them minimized on this cover while the Adam, who is known for being a short hero, towers over them. I kind of like that contrast. It's just kind of funny to me. The interlac, I don't have a problem with that so much as I think the lights coming off of the display for the hologram, I think the lighting is maybe a little bit distracting. I think that's a fair comment. I think it would be colored a little more subtly nowadays. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, if this was had a modern color, I mean, we wouldn't. I don't even think you would have the lines on the light. It would just be, it would just be colored differently using like the digital comic effects. But Martin, would you do our listeners, the secret admirers, the honor of hearing the origin of the Legion of Superheroes? Let's give it a crack, Ryan. Okie dokie. Well, this story is called "The Dreams of Youth" and it's by writer Paul Levitz. Penciler Rick Stacy or Stasi, I'm not sure which, Inkadic Giordano, letterer John Costanza, colorist Carl Gafford, and editor, the aforementioned Mark Wade. Now, Levitt, of course, has had three months as Legion of Superheroes writer and was writing the Baxter book at the time, so he was the appropriate choice for this story. And Rick Stacy, I'm not sure why he was drawing it. He did some work in Who's Who in the Legion, such as Leland McCauley, but I don't know of any special link. Perhaps Wade thought his classic style was just suitable. And he also did a couple of oddments, such as covers of the Roy and Dan Thomas, Greg Brooks, Crimson Avenger series. But anyway, Rick Stacy draws it. I like the work. And the story opens. We're told by the Encyclopedia Galactica on the Locust 4 spaceport, with a group of children watching a television report of the latest doings of the Legion of Superheroes. Soon, to stave off boredom while waiting for their connection, they play their game Legionnaires and Crooks, a sort of future cowboys and Indians, I suppose. While chasing one another, they knock down an old codger, who's extremely avuncular, they tell him about Legionnaires and Crooks, and this gets him thinking about, and I quote, the first children who played Legionnaire. The old man tells them that years ago, before they were a twinkle in their alien parents' eyes, a star cruiser was travelling to Earth. New passengers joined from Titan, one of Saturn's moons. One of them was an old man named R.J. Brand, a cantankerous old man who claimed to be the third richest man in the galaxy, but couldn't have been more than sixth, according to the old guide narrating. The other young woman... She was called Imra Ardeen, a graduate of the Institute of Titan. She caught the eye of two young chaps on the cruiser, Garth Rands of the planet Winath, who was travelling to Earth to ask the science police to help find his missing brother, and Rock Crin from the planet Brawl, keen to find paying work on Earth. Brand sits by Imra 
and she tells him she's not interested in the attention of the boys, as she's 14 Earth years old and as a Titan girl trained to keep her emotions in check. Meanwhile, Garth and Rock are getting pally. Garth has been telling Rock that his brother, Mekt, is a bad egg, but he's family after all. Rock has revealed that Brawl is so economically challenged that he needs to go off-planet to find work to support his own family. The starship reaches Earth, and as Imra and Brand are getting off, she touches her brow in that way the telepaths do, and senses something. She cries out, Wait! There's something wrong! Help! Someone! They're going to try to kill Mr. Brand! And she points at two men standing below, pulling out firearms. The boys, who are behind them on the steps, push Brand and Imra out of the way as the men fire blasters in their direction. Before they can aim again, Rock uses his magnetic powers to lift the guns into the air, and Garth blasts them with electric bolts. Rock twists the cruiser ramp and wraps the men in it. Imra reads the minds of the now unconscious men, I don't know how that works, and learns that the assassination attempt was linked to Brand's cousin Doyle. Brand is then up all night with his advisers, having them learn everything they can about the youths. Next morning, he makes the kids an offer, use their gifts to be superheroes, like the 20th century Superboy. He points out that while half the galaxy has what humans would consider superpowers, not everyone has the courage to use them properly. Rock and Imra apparently haven't been paying attention, as they say everyone on their world can do what they do. Garth points out that his powers are less common, but other people on other worlds have even greater abilities. Bran says, never mind, have a crack. If so many others are out there, so much better. They'll come too. Then you'll be a legion of superheroes. Is that so bad? Rock says he came to Earth to find work, and he couldn't think of a better job than being a hero like Superboy. Garth reckons joining up could boost his chances of finding Mekt, and Imra says maybe, but she worries that non-Terran powers are restricted on Earth. Mr. Brown has his ways, that is, intergalactic credits. He's a rich guy. Soon, the founders are in costume and using a computer to decide which of them should be leader and Brand introduces his employee, Marla, who's a man, Marla Latham, to be their liaison. Brand then goes off and calls a politician at the United Planets because there's a teeny tiny law he needs changing. Soon the three young heroes are deputised by the science police, and Mr Brand is telling Latham he must make the Legionnaires famous across the galaxy. Latham doesn't know why Brand is so keen, but we are privy to his thoughts. He wants to somehow attract the attention of his unnamed son. We then get a montage of the Legion becoming interplanetary sensations, sparking the interest of future members Triplicate Girl, Phantom Girl and Brainiac 5. Science policeman Zendak and RJ Brand's unknown son Reap Daggle, the future chameleon boy, are also attracted by the information. We then get a lovely two-page spread of how the team grew to be what it was in the comics of 1988. And then that's the end of the flashback. The young children, the alien children, say they like the story, but it's obviously rubbish. The Legion existed before rescuing that old man, Shuli. This made them go public. Or maybe the United Planets had been putting the team together for years, testing kids from all over the galaxy for superpowers, or perhaps the members were robots. Right, the kids leave, Bran turns to the camera and laughs, and then he says, maybe that's what happened to the legend of Superboy once it was real, then it became just a story, and now, who knows? After all, since RJ Brand left Earth and vanished, there may not be anyone left who really remembers the beginning, but by damn, I will never forget. And wouldn't you know it? It was RJ Brand telling his own story all along. And that's the end of this Secret Origins of the Legion. Alright, thank you very much. Well done, well done. Before going further, we had to have this moment because as I was reading this, I came to a dead stop in the middle of it when I saw Superboy. Because... 
I knew that Superboy was part of the original origin and how they had drawn their inspiration, but this is supposed to be post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, post-Man of Steel John Byrne reboot. There was no Superboy. He never put on the costume, and so he wouldn't have inspired them. So I knew that the Legion had to have this whole origin reboot. And then we get to the very end, and that penultimate panel, when Bran just kind of winks and says, maybe that is what happened to the legend of Superboy. Once it was real, then it became just a story, and now, who knows? And how Christmas is with the superheroes is that? Exactly! I was just thinking, of course, the Mark Wade connection, too, had me going with, with that, uh, the Kara Zor-El showing up in that dead man story. I'd completely forgotten that, that, that we had that moment until I read the book again this week, and it's like, of course! It's a little bit, not quite given the finger to the, uh, to the post-crisis retron, but just acknowledging that those stories did happen. And even if we're in a new sort of canon, a new continuity where it's not happening, you can't avoid that the people who read those stories, they meant something to them. And there is the magic of that that can't be taken away. And I prefer that because I think, what is it, no zealot like a convert, because I'm saying that I'm just really getting into the Legion now when I wasn't before. I do have always believed that the Legion needs that connection to Superman in some way. And I, I like when Supergirl is palling around with them too, but I think they need to have had that inspiration from Superman. And denying his involvement for long stretches of time, I think, weakens the core concept. I agree. I mean, after Zero Hour, when they were saying that, you know, Valor Monel in the 20th century, but firstly, had inspired the Legion, had pretty much taken Superboy's role in inspiring the Legion. It never took. It's pure. It has to be Superboy and then later Supergirl. And uh, the Irredeemable Shag brought up this as a possible substitute with what they should have done with Power Girl instead of tying her to Arion and the ancient lords of Atlantis. They should have made her kind of like a Daxamite or something similar to Mon-El and made her early adventures be what inspired the Legion of Superheroes. And that, I think that would have been a little bit better. I, I like that idea more than what we got, but I still think like Mon-El to have Power Girl do that, it would have been... A bit of a consolation prize. Not a bad idea, but there's only one Superman. Or in this case, Superboy. In the original story by Enos and Bridwell and Pete Costanza in Superboy 147, when Bran is trying to convince them to form the Legion, he should, you, you have seen, he shows them pictures of Superboy and Superboy. So it seems that they didn't quite feel confident enough to mention Supergirl at this point after the crisis. She'd been sort of thrown out of the origin, it seemed, unfortunately. Right, right. Let's get into the story itself. What did you think of the story? What did you think of this origin? Well, I thought it was a decent retelling of one of the most pedestrian origins in comics. I mean, much as I love the Legion, their origin isn't exciting. It's basically, you know, three kids on on a train or something. They do a good deed. They get offered lots and lots of funding for spaceships and adventures. I mean, it's interesting in that, you know, eventually we do find out that... Lightning Lad's brother is mecked and he becomes the supervillain Lightning Lad. And that Saturn Girl wanted to join the join the science police and she wanted to do good anyway. But it, no, it's, it's not very exciting. I mean, Levitt does give us it from a slightly different perspective here because in the original, it's just, you know, you're introduced to the story via a flashback with people wandering through Legion Clubhouse. Here, it's through the through the lens of R.J. Brand and his what he knows. It's almost a little bit his origin. There is a lot of focus on him and what his motivation for creating this team was. 
It is. I mean, if readers reading this, like myself, had read a few years earlier The Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes three-issue miniseries or, you know, subsequent Legion stories, they would have known that R.J. Brandt, yes, as it's hinted in the story, that he's Chameleon Boy's father and that he was originally a shape-changer himself. He lost his power to shape-change, came to Earth, made billions, wanted to find his son. And what happens after this story is even more interesting, but I don't know whether you want to get into that at all. But yes, it's it's just nice to have a bit of a focus on Archie Brand, who for some reason has a bead in this story, which he never had in 40 years, but never mind. From what I have read of the way Levitz treats R.J. Brand in this story and in other comics, I'm not sure I quite have a handle on him. I'm not sure how much we're supposed to like him and how much we're not. Because at the one point he does have this, he kind of comes off like an old, nice Santa Claus grandpa figure who's being the beneficiary for these kids and giving them all the things that they need to be better. But sometimes you get into this little sense that maybe he's a little bit too obsessive. Maybe he's a little bit shady. Maybe he's willing to, you know, cut corners and and undermine other people just to sort of help out his kids and benefit this team. And it kind of reminds me, I can't help but draw the comparison to the X-Men and how, you know, at first, you know, Professor Xavier was their benevolent leader, but before long, Marvel started to do a lot to kind of Maybe it was just that that sense of anti-authority and, you know, the teenage rebellion that there has to be something wrong with the with the parental figure. And, and am I reading that right? I mean, you've obviously read well, so much more. I mean, is there is there a dark side to R.J. Brand that I'm picking up on or not? Not unless I've forgotten. I mean, I, I think in those days, I think it was just seriously just cutting corners. I mean, he never, ever went anywhere near, near the darkness that Xavier's had over the years. Mm-hmm. He was basically just, just a good guy. And, you know, he became pretty much a superhero himself when, in fact, he did, he joined, you know, he got sent into the past by the time ca- Trapper, time Trapper, sorry, <laughs> by the time Trapper swapped, swapped with Phantom Girl. In fact, no, no, I'm telling this wrong. It's, it's too complicated to go into, basically. There was, there was, some, there was some time swappery after this, after the after the the, uh, the invasion crossover, and he was originally a 20th century Derlin, went into the future. Oh, it's so complicated. Okay. Pretend, I never, pretend I never mentioned it. You <laughs> okay. know, good. But no, basically, R.J. Brand, good guy. Okay. All right, then, I, then I, maybe I was just bringing in my own biases and thinking that all... Uh, I've been reading. I've been watching too many of the CW shows, like Arrow, Flash, and Supergirl, that every adult is secretly the, your worst enemy. Oh no! I mean, I'm 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 a little bit cynical myself because if you notice the character of Marlon, in the, the Legion's adult advisor, mm-hmm. the costume he's wearing and the costume he first appeared in, in Superboy when Ultra Boy debuted is pretty much exactly the same as Ultra Boy's costume when they went to went to Smallville posing as father and son. I'm thinking, oh, they're very close and they're wearing the same outfit, and it's just dirty mind. <laughs> Kindly adult. All right. Other thoughts on the story? Let's see. It was nice to see Mutually in another town there. She was one of Levitt's regular characters, and the use of the Encyclopedia Galactica, that was his ongoing narration device that he used even when he came back to the Legion just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I actually do like the panel of Mr. Brand picking up one of the kids, calling him a pup, because I think he was just a lovely, lovely, kind, kindly granddad figure. <laughs> I mean, I like that Levitt's had to spot colours of Brand's narration with such things as extreme dismissive attitude of the skilled Saturn Girls Home World. Mm-hmm. That was quite. That was quite fun. Yeah, I, I like the framing device. I like the way that Levitt sets it up with this older man, who, if 
I mean, it's pretty clear from the get-go that this is an older version of R.J. Brand, but he's telling this story to a new generation of kids who grow up thinking the Legion is the coolest thing ever, and that's what they're aspiring to be. So, yeah, it's a classic sort of narrative frame device. I really, really enjoy it. Um, and I like at the end the reveal that they're like, oh, that's not a real story. That can't possibly be the origin. No, they're they're robots. They're, there's always a bigger conspiracy theory or something like that. And and yep, he just kind of suggestion for the kids. Yeah, and he just laughs it off, and he's like, oh, kids. <laughs> yeah, actually, one interesting thing is that when Cosmic Boy is describing his powers, and he mentions it as being quote a trick of evolution in mutagenic drugs, I think that's the only time I've seen mutagenic drugs mentioned. Previously, it was always just the people. Well, this was the standard Legion powers origin. Yeah. The people evolved their powers to cope with some environmental problem. And on his world, they had metal beasts that attacked people, and the people just you know boing just developed magnetic powers that somehow put off the metal beasts. So I think that was Levitt's just trying for a little bit more science in there, which wasn't needed. It's just they have magnetic powers. That's it. They like to wear pink. That's all you need. <laughs> they do. All oh, the costumes in this. Yeah. But actually, and I may be reading too much into this myself, but the colour of the costumes that the future founders are wearing when they're on the spaceship, they're not a million miles away from the costume colours of Adventure Comics number 247 with sort of satin girl in greens and yellows. And I don't know, I may, I may be pushing too far on that one. It's, and also, it's uh, fun that in this story we see the origin of the clubhouse being that they built the clubhouse. <laughs> Whereas, I think in the early Adventure Comics, it was just it was a former spaceship that they just repurposed. And of course, without spoiling the future issue of Secret Origins in the future podcast, let's just say the clubhouse origin is spectacularly overturned in Secret Origins 46. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You mentioned the art. I, Rick, I, I think Stassi. I could be wrong. It might be Stacy. He didn't have a whole lot of credits. Um, I, I know, like, I think right after this, he did um, a short run on Action Comics Weekly where he was doing Captain Marvel written by Roy Thomas. I think he does a really good job on this. I mean, it's, I like it. it's not it's not flashy art. It's not it, it doesn't blow you away. But I think what he does really, really well here is capturing the faces of the characters, getting that sort of expression, that emotion, and really, he makes the kids look like kids a lot of the time. That's something that a lot of artists don't do when they draw kids. It's just smaller versions of adults. And I think in, in some of these early panels, like on page 8, when when Cosmic Boy and Lightning Lad first use their powers to kind of save R.J. Brand, you see the youth on their faces, and I like that a lot. I can see that, yes. And I mean, I like, I like for example, that he's thinking about his layout. So on the page where they're deciding that, yes, they will become Legionnaires, and they're going, we're a team, bottom of page 12. And then he, you know, he uses the exact same composition when they're in the costumes for the first time on page thirteen. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like, I like that with all the photographers in the foreground, and it's just nice. It's heroic without being too over the top. You can see the enthusiasm of them. And, and then that double page spread, which I love on seventeen and eighteen. I'm calling on you for something. Help me identify some of these characters because I can't just. I, I'm not sure I know all of these guys, and I'm sure I could have just gone to any number of uh, hundred thousand websites and figured this out, <laughs> including the Legion of Super Bloggers. But okay, so from from right to left across the top, we've got Starboy, yep, and Colossal Boy, and Shrinking Violet on his shoulder, yes, um, Phantom Girl. Is that under his... And the Phantom Girl under, under, under Colossal Boy's fist, yes. Right. Dawnstar up at the top, Wildfire beneath her. 
Yep. Cosmic Boy, Bouncing Boy, Monel, Saturn Girl, Lightning Lad, and then the two upper at the top left, the black guy with the white stripe in his hair. I'm not right, sure. Right, right. That's the second invisible kid. Uh, yes. And then who's the other one in the sort of metallic? That is with a horrible skull cap. Yes, that that is Polar. That is Polar Boy. So he was he was Polar, the, okay, Polar the, Boy. Yeah, the first the first Legion of Substitute he was to join the team. He wasn't the first to be invited. Stone Boy was invited but turned them down. Okay. But yes, that's that's Polar Boy. Okay, and then bottom level is that White Witch? Yes, it is. Yeah, looking very very pallid. Okay, um, and who's the alien next to her? That's Tellus. He was he was another telepathic type guy who joined when Saturn Girl, Lightning Lad, and Cosmic Boy took a break. Okay, uh, Dream Girl on the bottom beneath them, looking great. Tossing it up, yes. <laughs> uh, the Masked Woman. I should know. Who it is? Sensor Girl. Sensor Girl. Okay, and, and I know her identity is a bit of a mystery. I actually have that book, uh, but I couldn't remember. Yes, indeed. Uh, Sun Boy. Is that uh, Lightning Lad's sister? Yes, that's Lightning Lass. Okay. So, yes, she was back to being Lightning Lass after years of being Light Lass, yes. Right, right. Uh, then Timberwolf, Shadow Lass, Ultra Boy, Element Lad, Block, Brainiac 5, and Chameleon Boy. And you missed one? Is it the like the little robot fly- floating thing? Indeedy. Which one is that? Quizlet. Quizlet, okay. With the irritating speech patterns. Okay. Not familiar with that one yet. There's still a oh, whole lot of... Oh, like Mantis. Okay. As I mentioned up top, I'm reading through the Great Darkness Saga and really getting into this era, and I'm liking it a whole lot more than I thought I would. So, Other notes about the story? Other things that you liked or other criticisms that you might have had? Criticisms? Not really, because I, I just think it, do, it does the job just absolutely fine. You know, it's, again, it's not the most exciting, but unless he did lots of sort of retroactive continuity and just made things up, you couldn't really do a lot, a lot with it. I mean, I like in the story that it's based on, you have it, the the, uh, the additions of Phantom Girl and Triplicate Girl are a little bit more active. You see them actually approach the team and join, whereas in this one they're just sort of watching it on TV. So that's a little bit duller in this story. Mm-hmm. No, I just think it's a very very nice retelling of the of the original. It's interesting that in the, in this one that uh, you know Saturn Girl mentions that she's fourteen and considered an adult on her planet. Where again in the, in the original, you know Cos- Cosmic Boy mentions that he's fourteen and considered an adult, and eventually you you learn that that's the age of majority across the United Planets. Rarely did anyone even look 14. They always looked about 16, 17. Right. Well, especially after Dave Cockrum redesigned their costumes and made her look sexy, made everybody look good. But. Oh, absolutely. Because Cosmic Boy in his Mike Grell Rocky Horror Show comic outfit. That was the – oh, yeah. That was the one where he's like – oh, yeah, yeah. It looks like – yeah. It's a corset, basically. Corset and boots. It was. They were – oh, they had some weird costumes. <coughs> yeah, Starboy also had like a deep V-neck cut down to like his navel. Almost. It did for a short while. I think that was when, when – Steve Ditko popped in for a couple of issues here and there, but generally it was, it was like a polar neck type thing. Yeah. yeah. I see that uh, in the letter column of this issue, they're claiming that this is you know the 30th to coincide with the Legion's 30th anniversary. But again, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, this this issue went on the racks on yes 15th of December 1987, whereas yep. Adventure 247 was like you said February 58. So there were a few months out, but the thought was there. Right, I think maybe they were trying to put it with the cover date, but yeah, it was a little bit, it was off by a few months, but uh, the spirit was still there. Yeah, I see that in, in the same month as this issue of Secret Origins came out, the regular Legion title by Levitt was doing the, it was an anniversary issue, and it was doing the origin of the Rand siblings yet again. We've seen <laughs> that so many times over the years. I, th- I think the first time we saw it was just Garth. The second time, I think it was Garth, Garth and Ayla, and then I think the third time was, oh, but our big brother Lightning Lord was there as well. And it's like, I, 
I may I may have the, the order wrong, but it was just strange. It was like more and more brothers and sisters the whole time. <laughs> one other note that has nothing to do with the origin itself, but it is one of the ads inside, and this will go back to a previous episode. There is an ad next to page nine for the Warlord comic. And uh, listeners of this show will think back to episode 16, I believe, when we had the Warlord on it. Uh, this ad mentions Maddox's Revenge, a special three-part saga in issues 129, 130, and 131. Uh, when Professor Alan Middleton was on the show, episode 16, that Warlord story was bizarrely narrated by this guy named Maddox, and I asked him if that character would ever return in the story. And here, about a year later, we find out that, yes, he did come back for his revenge. So. <laughs> yes, I saw that advert. I was trying to remember if that was the character that you were talking about. Yep. I was the Warlord fan, but... Yes, actually, well, going going back for a second to Rick Stassi's art, one of the things I absolutely love at the bottom of page four, you have what seems to be a space nun just pulling the ear of some <laughs> whining child. Yeah. Little, little touches like that I like. Such a nice thing. Uh, any other final notes on this story specifically? I don't think so, because, I mean, I have, I have notes, I mean, because I was looking at the original stories, well, I had a few notes on that, but that's not specifically relevant to this episode, but it's just, I was such, you know, being a British kid, not knowing how common the name Costanza was across the world. I remember when I was a kid looking at the letter with John Costanza thinking, oh, he must be related to Pete Costanza, who drew, who drew the issue 147 Superboy, Origin of the Legion, but of course, no relation whatsoever. It's quite a common name. <laughs> Actually, one, one thing that I think that this story, this retelling does miss, is E. Nelson Bridwell's lovely bits of dialogue from the original where when for the first time Sandgirl seen by Rock and Garth on the ship... Garth says, get a Lord of the Blonde, what a dish. And later on someone says, popping planetoids, that's what Levitt's missed. Yeah, you need dialogue like that. Popping planetoids, wow. Nice. So I mentioned that I've sort of just come into the sense of Legion fandom and just kind of getting into it and really feeling like I'm connecting with this team. I'm starting to kind of have it. Now, it, it sort of occurred to me last night as I was reviewing these stories, as I was doing some research for it, I just had this weird little epiphany. And as I say this, I understand that some diehard Legion fans might roll their eyes, might groan, might think I'm completely missing the point. But indulge me for a second. If I was to pitch this as the Legion of Superheroes movie or TV show or something, if I wanted to sell this idea to somebody else, this is the comparison I would make. The Legion is Star Trek meets, of all things, Harry Potter. Think about who we meet in the beginning. You've got three kids, little young teenagers, on a train or ship going to some new destination. You've got the dark-haired, brooding leader type with kind of like a hunt past. You've got the ginger-haired, kind of more talkative guy. You've got the girl who's smarter than the two of them. And then you've got this like fancy old guy who looks a bit like a wizard or Santa Claus and and like just like these trappings and then they're gonna bring in all of their other friends who all have they they all have their own little unique powers, their own little unique sort of histories. There's gonna be a lot of dating intermingling and things like that. They'll eventually grow up, but I like the idea that fundamentally this is a group of kids, a group of teenagers with their own little generation but they're also you got all these crazy like they're they're all from different planets with different histories and you can travel to all of these things like Star Trek and every time you go to a new planet it can be a commentary on some aspect of humanity so it's 
all of these things that you can embrace, all of these tropes, and 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 when you kind of melt them all together, I do, I get it, I get why people like this. I think that's rather brilliant, and you should give yourself a big 31st century pat on the back, Ryan. <laughs> Honestly, if I were a TV executive, I'd be buying that. The Harry Potter comparison is rather excellent, really, because certainly, especially if you're looking at Imra as Hermione, both are such, you know, yes, smarter than the boys, but very, very, very much in the we know it. So superior. I mean, I've got friends in the Legion Amateur Press Alliance, I mean, who just can't stand Imra because she is, well, she's a bit of a dictator. You know, the, the early adventure comic stories, she was forever sort of disbanding the team, kicking members out, always for their own, their own good. But she was so superior. And I think a character like that in a TV show would be great. And yes, I mean, at its best, the Legion is a group of, yes, school kids, youths who are divided into romances. They're the cliques, friendships, rivalries. But they'll put everything to one side for the sake of the mission. And I think that's a great lesson and not a million miles from Star Trek. Everyone just hangs together for the greater good. The only sort of deviations from those is that within Star Trek and within Harry Potter, you had a clear kind of hierarchy and a clear kind of protagonist of whose story you were kind of following. And it is certainly more so with Harry Potter, but I think, I think Star Trek kind of lent itself a little bit more to the ensemble. And this is definitely an ensemble. And I like within the books that I've read that one issue will focus on, you know, the, the core relationship of these two characters who are dating. And you've got three other heroes around them as they're fighting the Kuns, as they're attacking Nullport or something. And then the next issue, seven completely different characters. And the next issue after that, two characters from the issue that before. And then, like the X-Men, I mean, there there was enough variety and enough range that you could find, you could see yourself in any one of these characters. You could have that inroad to this character's story is like mine, his attitude, or her her history, her pain, her pathos feels familiar to me, and things like that. And particularly for young readers, for young viewers and young audiences, I think that's... I think that's why the X-Men were so popular, especially in the 80s and 90s, when you had a youth culture that was becoming more media-savvy, just kind of on the brink. But there was a lot more just a sense of negativity and the grunge and the hip-hop culture and everything like that. They just It fostered this idea of, of kids as outsiders and exiles. But I think today, the sort of millennial generation is different they are much more connected through social media and they're much more expressive. They're much more celebratory, not always of good things, uh, sometimes very pedestrian and very stupid things, but I think there is a sense of whimsy and optimism about the younger generation right now. And I think they would gravitate more towards the stories about kids having fun being superheroes and doing stuff like this, saving galaxies from invading aliens or from time trappers or from dark side. Absolutely. I would love to see DC try the Legion with that approach. I mean, given that there are so many great approaches to the Legion and so many ways in which the Legion chimes with things that are successful, like Harry Potter or the X-Men or Star Trek, it's amazing to me that DC just cannot seem to find an approach nowadays that sticks, one that will work. I mean, the Space School recently, DC were trying it in Supergirl with the Crucible storyline by Mike Johnson and Kay Perkins, which Ange would agree with me, was an excellent run. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps those two writers, if they grabbed them and said, you know, take a similar approach to the Legion, obviously with more characters, just get expansive, do some world building, do some universe building, don't necessarily go back and retell the old stories, which is what happened with the 
the Zero Hour Legion, a.k.a. the Archie Legion, because it was so much like the Archie Comics characters at times, which wasn't a bad thing. Find your own way. Give us a new Legion for a new century with the classic characters. Go wild. Don't be too respectful. I think that approach could really, really work. I mean, Mark Wade for a while, I think that's what he and Dave Gibbons were, sorry, not Dave Gibbons, Barry Kitson were going for in their short-lived run. But that got bumped by Jeff Johns's bringing back the original Legion in one shape or form. Right. And I just think, yeah, DC just need to commit long-term to someone's approach to the Legion. Give, just say, you know, you're definitely going to have at least two years. Build it, build your audience, we'll approach it, find out what works, and just have some fun with it. Because I really miss not having a Legion comic to read every month. Uh, well, speaking of that, it's a nice little segue. What old Legion books, now that there isn't a current one on the shelves, what old Legion books would you recommend for people who wanted to get into this series or wanted to find more about these characters? Well, sticking with Received Wisdom, the aforementioned by yourself, Great Darkness Saga, by Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen and Lanny Marstead mainly, in which the Legion face an amazing dark threat, which I would actually not say who it was, but he's on the cover, <laughs> which is just the stupidest cover to a trade paperback ever. Because when we were reading it month by month and bit by bit, you could perhaps work out that they were facing Darkseid. It was like, wow! Anyway, but it still stands as a brilliantly written, fantastically well-constructed, beautifully drawn story. With superb action, wonderful characterization, big moments, funny moments. It's just amazing. Definitely buy that. I would also say collections of the Baxter Run by Levitz, Giffen, Steve Lytle, The Rock, all very good. I would specifically recommend the collection of the first six, maybe seven issues, An Eye for an Eye, which is the Legion of Superheroes at their native best fighting against the reformed Legion of Supervillains. And one character pays the ultimate price, another character does something devastatingly unexpected. Brilliant, read that. The Five Year Later's Legion, which I think you said you tried but didn't really get into, mm. by Keith Giffen, Tom and Mary Beerbohm, Alvear, in which Keith Giffen really, really was trying an unconventional approach to his art. I think people were saying it was based on Jose Munoz, who I'm not too familiar with, but basically it was the nine-panel grid, huge amount of, well, not even shadows, big black blobs on people's faces, bonkers close-ups, noses that even Gil Giffen, Gil Kane would have avoided showing you the nostrils off. But it was a fantastically absorbing storyline when the Legion had been split up for years and years and years and over 12 issues, the gang is getting back together in a very, very dark galaxy. On the one hand, it's the entirely the opposite of the approach that worked for the Legion for so many years in that the Legion always was primarily, even though people died, optimistic, colourful, very original Star Trek, the future's bright, the future works. This time, it had all gone to hell. But bit by bit, they rebuilt a brighter future. In there, there is the problems of post-crisis business when the Legion lost their connection to Superboy. But in about the fourth issue, there's, there's an excellent, excellent story in which Giffen and the beer bombs address that. And sadly, I'm recommending something that hasn't been collected. So I would say you can read this online on Comixology and perhaps on the digital and finally, I would say, I think you still can get this in trade paperback, Legion Lost by Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning, Liv Hoypel, long before he went to Marvel and became a superstar. Again, it's a, it's a Legion story, and it's very, very dark. But at the core of it, the Legion spirit is always there. 
they're sort of not naive anymore, the heroes here, but they're still super optimistic, doing their best, fighting for what's right. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. And apart from that, I would say, if you are like me and can still enjoy the very early 60s Silver Age stories, buy the cheap telephone books, the DC showcases. There's a Legion approach that works for everybody, I think. There's this, you know, the simplistic early Legion. There's the early 70s, more sophisticated Legion. There's the, the rich, rich Levitt's Legion. The Archie Legion after Zero Hour. The Darker Legion as it goes on. Just... If you fancy reading Legion or and you've never tried it, go along to perhaps the Legion of Superbloggers, run by Shag and Pals, mm. see what they're recommending. Just just jump in, try a Legion book. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely recommend if people check out the Legion of Superbloggers.blogspot.com, run by, among other people, Russell Burbage, the Irredeemable Shag. I know some of our other guests have been contributors to that. It's a great resource, and you can approach any one of them. I imagine I'll be getting some feedback on this episode from them, telling me that we, we didn't talk about it enough, or we forgot this thing, and there will be tons of uh, feedback coming about this episode, people praising the Legion and different aspects. Like I said, I'm excited for this, and uh, I will have a couple months uh, after this episode comes out to uh, to dive further into the Legion in preparation for some more Legion-specific origins to come up in the future of this series and the future of this podcast. So, uh, Sir Martin of Grey, I want to thank you very, very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Where can people find you if they want to hear more about your thoughts on comics or anything else like that? Well, I scrabble together a few reviews every week. Usually on Wednesdays, I get the new comics and review them at my blog, which is called Too Dangerous for a Girl, which sounds very sexist. It's actually a quote from a Legion comic when Brainiac once said that Saturn Girl couldn't go on a mission because it's too dangerous for a girl. Saturn Girl put him in his place. So, <laughs> I, I love days. that title, by the way. I think Too Dangerous for a Girl is such a wonderfully, strangely charming title for some reason. Thank you. One or two people have taken it the wrong way because obviously, you know, the, the context's not there. When I had a different layout on the blog, I had the original panel at the bottom of the page and people could see I wasn't just saying Too Dangerous for a Girl. But uh, I think people bear with me anyway. Thanks very much. And I hope that I will have you on the show in the future again. Thank you. I'll be delighted to come back if you need me. Yeah. All right. Secret admirers, do not go far away because we'll be back in a minute with the origin of the Golden Age Adam. It's an old joke. Frank doesn't pronounce it thesaurus. He pronounces it thesaurus. Thesaurus? And when I asked him, what the f*** is a thesaurus? He's like, I don't believe in saying it thesaurus. It sounds like a goddamn dinosaur. Three friends. Come, my baby. The world is not right. The Looney Tunes Lands comes out. Too many topics. Please, uh, my uh, It's just so much been there, done that. Super cookie-cutter hip-hop with it. One podcast. The lead singer of Nickelback doesn't have demons. He gave away his heart. Zero f***s giving. How sad is it that Axl Rose didn't kill himself for OD? Django. 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 Where did the plastic stop and the human flesh start? Oh, no. Tony, you're close. We're going to take you out of the podcast. <laughs> the World's Fine Podcast. I mean, it's just so well done. We're back. My next guest is making his second full appearance on the show. From the Hammer Strikes blog and the Hammer podcast, it's Mr. Gene Hendricks. Welcome back, Gene. 
Oh, thank you very much for having me on after the snafu with our man. You know what? It happens. And uh, you, hey, you still sort of got to participate in that episode by proxy. I mean, you wrote the story summary that I read. So, Well, why waste the effort? <laughs> exactly. exactly. And prior to that, you had been on the episode where we talked about the origin of the Spectre. And now we are covering another Justice Society founder. We are looking at Al Pratt, the Golden Age Adam. What is your experience with this character? I don't have a lot of direct experience with Al Pratt. Mainly, I was reading a lot of JSA when it was actually the title JSA. Mm -hmm. So you ended up with Nucleon became Adam Smasher in that. And we'll get into who, what his connection is later. And then they brought damage in a little bit later in the run. But there was always this reference to Al Pratt and his being the Golden Age Adam. Really, the only direct contact I had with him for a long time was Zero Hour, where he died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is not the best place to start with a character. <laughs> But that's basically it. I, I don't have a huge amount of direct experience, although I have, thanks to uh, the advent of digital comics, I have read a lot of him in All-Star Squadron. I'm sort of in that same boat in that my direct knowledge of this character, I haven't read a whole lot with him other than back issues of those old issues. Certainly, I knew I was reading JSA at the same time. I've always sort of had a fondness for this character because he's a Justice Society founding member and that seems like it should be important, so I want to like him. And also just because his costume is so different than anybody else's. Oh, yes. It's it's a really unique look. It's, it's sort of, he's wearing kind of like a wrestling singlet, which is different. I mean, he's got the bare legs, the bare arms. Really, I mean, you don't see many characters like that other than Robin, who was a teenager, was intentionally supposed to be young and sort of capture that boyishness. This is a this is a, a supposedly full-grown man, although <laughs> lots of jokes about how full-grown he is. But, like, the color scheme, the fact that it's yellow and brown, and then he's got this blue cloak that covers his face. It's like a full-face mask that also includes a cape. It's just a very... I've never seen another character look anything like this, and that sort of sets him apart. Now, you can argue, some people might look at it and say that's a hideous costume design, but there is something certainly striking about it and memorable about it, I think. Oh, definitely. And considering when the character was created, mm-hmm. you were still in the era of the trench coat and fedora heroes. Mm-hmm. You had the Crimson Avenger, you had the Sandman, and yeah, you had Green Lantern and Flash and Hawkman. But this, even with the ones that had some part of their face covered, Adam is the first one to with the Spider-Man mask, where it covers every little bit of his face. Yeah. yeah. Now, you could argue that he doesn't wear gloves, so <laughs> fingerprints, but it was the 40s. <laughs> Fingerprint technology wasn't all that great. But it's it's definitely a, a unique look, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the wrestling singlet because that's exactly what my mind went to the first time I saw him. Mm-hmm. And part of that is one when I was growing up in the '80s, I was a huge WWF fan. But two, I actually wrestled in high school, so I'm very familiar with this kind of outfit. It, it's a little bit wrestling, and it's a little bit circus strongman. Which he actually mentions in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he calls it a strongman outfit. 
Yeah, and it kind of like, again, harkening back to a much older era, that golden age, where he would have that kind of outfit. But even, I mean, going back to the world of sort of professional wrestling and the more theatrical elements of professional wrestling, this guy could have been in the WWF or the WCW or something, like, complete with mask and cape. That could be the way he walks into the ring. Yeah, I mean, really, he could have been in professional wrestling back in the 40s. Mm -hmm. Wrestling was big back then. Mm Mm-hmm. And people took it pretty damn seriously to the point where you actually had one woman, and I could be getting the name completely wrong, but I think she went by Hatpin Harriet, where it, anyone who doesn't know, women back in the 40s and earlier, when they would have these hats on their head, they, they wouldn't rely on gravity. They would actually have a very long pin stuck through the hat into their hair. To make sure that it stayed in place, which is why you can get hats that look like they're completely vertical because they're actually <laughs> pinned in place. Mm-hmm. Well, this old lady would sit ringside in wrestling. And if one of the guys that she didn't like would come by, she'd take her hat pin out and poke him in the ass. <laughs> and you think wrestling fans today are nuts. How the Golden Age Red Tornado beat her to the punch and that that woman didn't become a costumed character in the comics. I'll never know. <laughs> Hatpin Harriet. That should have been a feature in Flash comics. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> Just give her a two-page strip. <laughs> All right, well, uh, getting back to this character's first appearance, going back to 1940, the Golden Age Adam was created by writer Bill O'Connor and artist Ben Flinton, the same creative team that worked on... No, just the Atom. <laughs> the character debuted in All-American Comics issue 19 back in 1940, though never as popular as All-American Star Attraction, the Green Lantern, the Atom did appear in most of the first 72 issues of the series. Only four months after his first appearance, the Atom became one of the founding members of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics issue 3. He stuck with the team and the series more or less until its cancellation in 1951. Prior to that, in 1947, after the Atom stopped appearing in All-American, he jumped over to Flash Comics, where his new adventures replaced the feature starring Rockhead McWizard. I'm going to say that again. His adventures replaced the feature starring Rockhead McWizard. And wow. DC Comics has never recovered from that horrible mistake. <laughs> Adam stayed in Flash Comics with the titular Speedster, Hawkman, and Black Canary until the book ended with issue 104. Starting in the 60s, the Adam would make regular annual appearances in Justice League of America when the team crossed over with the JSA of Earth 2. Adam also appeared in select issues of the Silver Age Adam series, as well as Wonder Woman, Flash, Adventure Comics, and issue 30 of DC Comics Presents, which told the backup story Whatever Happened to the Golden Age Adam. After that, Roy Thomas brought him back in All-Star Squadron, as if you couldn't have guessed, and naturally he appeared in Infinity, Inc. and Young All-Stars, too, as well as the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Post-Crisis, Adam is better known for his legacy characters that we mentioned earlier, Al Rothstein, better known as Nuclon, or Adam Smasher, and the Adam's son, Damage. The Adam himself was killed in Zero Hour when he was aged to death by Extant, an event that was not depicted in the previously mentioned Whatever Happened To story. Hmm. I'm sure if there's uh, some glaring omission, hopefully our listeners will write that in the feedback section. Yes, and, and to head off those listeners, I did look it up. 
it wasn't Hatpin Harriet. It was Hatpin Mary. Hatpin Mary. Yeah. In fact, there is a book out called The Revenge of Hatpin Mary, Women, Professional Wrestling, and Fan Culture in the 1950s. And if you're going to buy that, please go to twotruefrinks.com and click on the Amazon link. <laughs> Good Plug. idea. Nice. <laughs> I don't know. I prefer the alliteration of Hatpin Harriet. But Yeah, me too, really. So yeah. let, let's say that in, in the DC universe that it, there was a Hatpin Harriet. As they always say, why let the facts ruin a good story? <laughs> it was my father who coined that term, by the way. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, but, you know, again, why let it, the facts? <laughs> exactly. All right, Gene, uh, would you do the Secret Admirers the service of recounting the secret origin of the Golden Age, Adam? I would be happy to. In this story, we have our writer is Roy Thomas, penciler Mike Clark, inker Bob Downs, Letterers, yes, plural, Gene Simic, Susan Krantz, and Janice Chiang. Colorist, Carl Gafford. The editor is Mark Wade, and the Adam created by Ben Filton and Bill O'Connor. Our story opens on a city street in January 1940, where five-foot-one-inch college sophomore Al Pratt is walking down the street. Al is not only put down by a man named George, but he is physically assaulted by Biff and his cronies. No, not that Biff. <laughs> After being rushed off, Al runs into Mary, whom he asks to the prom, which is a college thing in the 40s? We'll come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> Before Mary can definitively answer, they're mugged, because New York City. Al tries to defend Mary, but is knocked silly for his trouble. The mugger gets away, and Mary berates Al for being spineless. Dejected, Al walks away, but hears someone following him. It's a bum looking for a dime. Insert the, uh... Say, pardon me, but could you help out a fellow American who's down on his luck? At first, Al is going to give him a dollar, but decides instead to buy the man dinner. At the Empire Diner, Al and the man talk, and he turns out to be Joe Morgan, a famous boxer and trainer who is down on his luck. In return for living at a place in the country that used to belong to Al's uncle, Joe agrees to train Al on the weekends. Joe trains Al for a year, building up his body and teaching him how to fight. Since there's nothing more for Joe to teach him, Al proposes that Joe come back to the city and become his roommate. At the train station, they are about to get their tickets when a man rudely butts ahead of Al. Not taking this lying down, Al beats the tar out of the man until Joe stops him. Joe admits that he might have made Al stronger than he intended. Back in the city, Al accidentally rips the door to their new apartment off the hinges. Stronger indeed. Al replaces the door and goes for a walk, passing Mary's house and sees her being kidnapped. Rather than stop the kidnapping, Al jumps on the back of the car to see where they're taking her. They pull up to a boarded-up cottage, and the kidnappers meet with their boss, who wants $20,000 for Mary's safe return to her father. Al, having heard enough, takes off his jacket and wraps it around his arm so he can bust through the window. He makes short work of the two thugs, but the boss has Mary at gunpoint. Al stoops over, agreeing to leave, but he grabs a metal vase and, yelling at Mary to duck, throws it, hitting the boss right in the face. Al calls the cops, leaving Mary tied up and blindfolded. The police arrive and find the crooks tied up and the calling card of the Adam left behind. Mary recognized the voice but couldn't quite place it, so the matter is dropped for whatever police procedural reason. 
The next day, Al is tormented by Biff again, even though he asked Biff to let bygones be bygones. Al then goes to ask Mary out, but she's smitten with the atom and won't give Al the time of day. A few days after that, Joe reads an article in the paper about Mary wearing the famed Kador necklace valued at $25,000 to the diamond ball that night. Al, frustrated that he's not going, smashes the table. Joe says that Al should go since he heard a rumor that the ball will be held up. Al doesn't realize, though, that Joe doesn't leave the apartment, so there's no way he could have heard any rumors. As he asks Mary to dance... The sound of gunfire is heard, and three goons rush in. Al ducks out, making a claim about going for help, but he really heads outside and changes into his new Adam costume. He climbs the side of the building and jumps in from the balcony. He takes out the goons in pretty short order. The Adam leaves after the ruckus, and Al comes back in. Biff accuses him of being a coward, and Al is about to slug him when Mary intervenes. Back at the apartment, Al finds Joe packing to leave. Since the appearance of the Atom, Joe doesn't think he has anything left to teach Al. They say goodbye, and Al, the narrator, laments that the next time that he'd see Joe, it would be when Joe was turned into a maddened giant by space radiation, which ended up killing him. Between leaving Al and his metamorphosis, though, Joe managed to train Wildcat and the Guardian to fight as well, which is a pretty good legacy. Al then goes on to relate how he got his own superpowers, a new costume, and eventually ended up marrying Mary giving us a happy ending. Well, that was an interesting story. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> On the surface, it is a perfectly fine retelling of a Golden Age origin story and first adventure. If you peel a little bit further, though, this is a strange story. There's a lot of weird choices in here. What did you think? First of all, what were your overall thoughts and impressions? Well, I enjoyed the story. Just reading it as is, it, it was very interesting. It's a little odd, though. I mean, I like the art. The last time I was on, I accused the art of being too cartoony with the Spectre. This, it is still on the cartoony side, but I think it works in this particular case. It's not as outrageous as the Spectre one, but it's not, like, photorealistic. So Mike Clark worked on the origins of Johnny Thunder, which had a very stylistic approach to it and the art on Dr. Midnight which I think Shag and I kind of agree that he was intentionally trying to capture some of the Golden Age style and it had a very stiff nature to it I think this is his best art of those three stories I um, would agree I think this seeing is, some of those pages <clears throat> this yeah. is far and away better than those um, and maybe some of it has to do with the inking, but I think a lot of it is just his style and approach just feels a little bit looser, a little bit more cartoonish and expressive, like you said, with the facial features. I don't know. I think this was the first time Mike Clark and Bob Downs worked together on this series, and I think they they were a good partnership. I think the pencils and inks really complemented each other in this story. Yeah, they, they look very good. I especially like some of the facial expressions mm -hmm. that you get, like when Al is knocked silly on page three. Mm -hmm. You see him look just looking around like, what what just happened? <laughs> it's a little interesting, though, on the first page, because obviously Al Pratt's a narrator. He's looking back on his life, etc. So in the background of the first page, although he's behind a building, but his arm is in front of the light pole, but whatever, you see the Adam in costume, and he looks depressed. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to be remembering this. I'm going to tell you, but I don't like talking about 
<laughs> on its face, the concept of Al Pratt becoming Adam is ridiculous. It's a little guy who just trains himself over a year on weekends. So, <laughs> if, so 104 days, not counting holidays. And he suddenly is strong enough to tear the door off of an apartment building. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, that goes into some of the weird issues that I have. So, all right, let's take this from the beginning. You mentioned prom was a thing from college. Maybe that was in the pre-war years. But the other thing is the bullying. Like, we saw this in the, the Firestorm origin when Professor Stein was bullied on campus. It's like... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a product of the times or just my experience, but when I was in college, I never saw things like this. Like, he's a college sophomore. He's like almost 20 years old. Yeah, you would think that it would be beyond this by this point, especially when you consider that back then college was not the norm. You had to have a good amount of personal wealth to afford to go to college. Mm-hmm. So... It doesn't make sense that you would have this. And, I mean, really, it, it's over the top, even for that. Right. And, but it the bullying also has one of my pet peeves with superheroes. They make fun of me by calling me this name. I will take it as my heroic moniker. Well, okay, so I want to get to the name, the Adam, later on. Yeah. But, okay, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that later. And, yeah, and the whole thing with Mary calling him spineless... He wasn't cowardly. He was just weak and ineffectual. He got, yeah. He got beat up because he's not strong. That doesn't make him spineless. Yeah, call him a wimp. Don't yeah. call him spineless. Right. Uh, so then you've got this weird moment where he meets a homeless bum and decides he's going to buy this guy food, where we find out, hey, this guy is a washed-up boxer. And at this moment, I had a few different thoughts. One of them was, I really wish we had gotten a wildcat origin. Yeah. So we've got this guy, Joe Morgan, and Al just decides, hey, come stay with me in a shack out in the woods for a year and train me, make me stronger. Yeah, it's, I mean, just the fact that the guy says, yeah, I'm Joe Morgan, when Joe Morgan is a famous personage, Mm -hmm. anyone could say that he's Joe Morgan, really, and Al just believes him. Now, it just so happens that he was telling the truth, and he's an honorable guy, but, jeez, isn't Al naive? Yeah. Maybe it's me, maybe it's what I'm bringing to the table, but I read some homoerotic undertones to their relationship. You mean the fact that Al said, well, I can't, I can't lose a big strapping man like you, come move in with me. <laughs> that was one thing. <laughs> um, the panel on the top of page seven, that's basically their whole montage scene in one panel with uh, Joe Morgan holding him down while he's doing ab crunches and just these profile shots of them sweating and gnashing their teeth. On the bottom of that page, you've got this shot of Joe sort of hovering behind him over his shoulder. And looking down on him mm-hmm. like, oh, what I could do to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much of this was implicit or implied in the original story. They just couldn't... They couldn't write about this in the 40s, or if it's just looking at a, a innocent story in a modern context. Just um... Now, let me ask you, while we're on that page, let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. It's never explained in the story, but at the top of that page, Joe is giving Al his wrist gauntlets that uh... he then never takes off. What's up with that? I mean, yeah, they're part of his costume and everything, but 
why is he eating with them? I mean, <laughs> are, are they supposed to be training weights or something? What's going on? That's a good question. And they don't really explain... I don't know enough about Al's like progression throughout the and whether or not All Star Squadron ever sort of retconned the character, but it seems like they're making him not just strong but super strong. The yeah. fact that he rips doors off walls and everything—that's not something that comes with you know when you hire a professional trainer to work on your core. No, that's that's an exterior element that makes him that strong. So, was it something about these? gauntlets that we're supposed to i i have no idea it's just strange the the way it goes because i can't tell just due to the way he he's he's a man in the 40s he's mm-hmm. in a suit constantly so i can't tell if he takes them off oh i'm wrong he does take them off at one point because on page 18 is that page 12 i'm sorry page 12 when he's beating up the goons, oh yeah, he he does not have them on. So it's not like you can say, oh, maybe they were enchanted and gave him super strength. Okay, so from the beginning, we've got this poor, pathetic, weak kind of loser getting bullied and harassed by punks. All right, that could be a hero's origin. Could also be mm-hmm. a villain's origin. True. Um, he meets this guy who trains him in secret in a cabin in the woods where they're alone with each other's bodies and nobody can see them. They come back and, as you point out, at the train station, this guy just kind of pushes him aside. And, holy hell, Al beats the crap out of this guy. Yeah, and the only reason he stops is because... Uh, and Now, here, here's the thing. On that page, on page 8, mm-hmm. the bottom right panel, mm-hmm. the word balloons are flipped. Yes, they are. Yes, Which I read it the first time. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, okay. It's yeah. a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the only reason he stops beating the guy is Joe comes up and says, stop it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you're going to kill him. Like, Yeah, that, that look when he first goes to hit the guy, he's yeah. got this crazed maniac look in his face. Right. So this is the first thing he does with his newfound strength and training is he lashes out at comparatively a minor bully. Somebody who just, like, cuts him in line. Okay, if we're, like, keeping scores of hero's origin, villain's origin. (laughs) Okay, I'm thinking villain here. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're definitely leaning that way. Yeah, okay. So he brings his friend to their motel, and he rips the door off the hinges... Okay. <laughs> Just because it was a little bit stuck. A little bit stuck. Yep, that's how we deal with things. And we're mm. just, just going to pretend like that's not a thing. And then, what does he do his first night back in the city after he spent the whole year training and making himself strong enough to just beat whoever he wants? Where does he go? To try and get a date. <laughs> he, walks <laughs> o- he walks over to this girl's house who dumped him before. I'm like, oh... I'm getting a really bad feeling from this. Like, what happens if she wants nothing to do with him? Yeah, and I love the narration here mm-hmm. because he told Joe, oh, I'm going to go see if I can find Mary's house. And it says, actually, it's nothing new for me to be walking past Mary's home. I've done it many times during the past year. Yeah. Little bit on the stalker side there. A little bit stalker side. And... Yep, I'm afraid for her. I'm really yeah. afraid for her safety, and it has nothing to do with the men who are kidnapping her for ransom. They, right. It, they might be the safer option. <laughs> they they <laughs> saved her from a uh, rapey evening. Yeah. Oh, boy. This is 
Okay, so moving on. So she gets kidnapped. He proceeds to beat the crap out of these guys in pretty epic and heroic fashion. Takes mm-hmm. down two much bigger goons and then throws a vase at the leader's head, knocks him unconscious. Now here's what I want to know. <clears throat> Why does he leave? Why does he try to create this secret identity? Because he was going to get a date with her. She was the objective. Yeah, you would think that he would be, oh, I am your rescuer. Come date me, woman. Absolutely. Take her blindfold off. Show her that, hey, you used to think I was this pipsqueak, but I just trashed these three goons and saved your life. Yeah, maybe I can, you know, work this into a second date. Maybe we can park a, you know, lookout point or something. He should not be running away and and this shouldn't lead to a false superhero identity. This should just be the start of their relationship. You would think. Yeah, I mean, really, in story, with what we are presented in this issue, he has no reason to create a secret identity. Nope. If, at some point in there, between the train station and this portion, he had mentioned something about, oh, I'm... I'm I don't know my own strength. I really went off on that guy. I really should keep control of myself. I shouldn't show off. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could buy it. Kind of. But yeah, yeah th- at the moment, it's just he's got to go so far out of his way to create the identity of the Adam that's not believable. Right. Or in my mind, I'm thinking of like the Alan Moore post-crisis, you know, deconstructionist view of this type of story where, at this point, Al Pratt is realizing that, no, it's not the woman that he's attracted to, it's the adrenaline, it's the thrill of beating up men. This is what he really wants. This is what he loves. Oh, he spent a whole year growing to love that. (laughs) There you go, there you go. (laughs) Again, continuing the themes of, okay, alright, alright. Before we move on too far, I want to point out that this section here is the only problem I have with the art because they specifically say how dark it is inside the cottage Mm. but the art doesn't show that the art shows everything really really well lit to the point where all the colors are popping and everything if it's supposed to be dark draw it dark yeah there are ways to do it where you still see what's going on. Just make everything gray tones. And then it's, oh, yeah, it must be dark in there. We can hardly see the what's on the page. There are shadows. Like, if you look where the boss is holding the gun on Mary, he's got this long shadow behind him. Mm-hmm. How do you have a shadow in a dark room? <laughs> this is why I can't watch the one scene in Silence of the Lambs anymore, because I see the shadow of... Buffalo Bill's hand as he tries to grab Clarice when in <laughs> it's supposed to be no light in there. Oh, now they just ruined it. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. You will now not be able to unsee that. <laughs> that was the point of the movie where you stood and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, the thing is, the I first saw that movie before I went to college. Loved the movie. <laughs> After I went to college, I realized... Oh, they filmed this in Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, where Hannibal is being held, mm-hmm. not the psychiatric yeah. institute, but when they have him in the cage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I took my uh, engineering training exam in that room. 
that building is the Soldiers and Sailors Museum in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so I'm just I, now when I watch it, it's like, yeah, I've been there. Oh, I remember that street. <laughs> kind of like when I watch The Sopranos. Okay, so next part of the story. So at this point, now we're at like the second issue. So the rescue of Mary that first time, I believe, would have ended the Adams' first adventure in All American number twenty in All American number nineteen. Okay. And then the rest of the story would have been the second adventure in All American issue twenty. And this is where we've got a, a new plot with Mary wearing this necklace, and Al continues to have anger issues. He's trashing their place. Yeah, it's just oh, I can't go to the dance. Crash. Okay, calm down, Bruce Banner. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a prom. You're in your twenties. Go find something else. To, I don't know. <laughs> but well, he can always spend spend the night with the the guy that never leaves the apartment. <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? I don't know. I mean, I know he was a bum for a while, but, but think- did he suddenly? develop a fear of open spaces is now he's now a shut-in he's acting like he's on a lamb like he's clearly yeah i mean it's it's almost like there was a subplot there that just never gets mentioned like it's something that they had worked out in the art and then roy thomas decided to change it in the script Mm -hmm. i don't think they touched anything about like this part of his life when they did the origin of the guardian and again, we he, we never got that reveal of the origin of Wildcat, but that was the sort of retcon that Roy Thomas made this guy the trainer of all three of those characters. And that was specifically so you could have the three of them teaming up in All-Star Squadron. Right, and I did not like that annual, so... <laughs> this, this one bit of their shared history I don't even care about. You don't like space radiation? I said I, I didn't say that. I just well, okay. I didn't like the way it was employed in that story. Yeah. I love space radiation. It gave me the Fantastic Four. So he had this costume in the back of his car that he brought to prom? See, that's just it. It he mentions in there and this is the actual narration box. Mm-hmm. By the time I rent a tux and pick up a few other accoutrements along the way. Mm-hmm. The diamond ball is already in full swing. So it sounds to me like he went to the Tux rental place, and next door was the costume shop, and he said, you know what? Let me get the most outrageous outfit I can come up with. But then later on, on, on page 17, after he goes outside to change, but right now I've got other things to worry about. I've dragged along a mask and cape to go with the strongman outfit I pieced together up at the farm. Okay, so he said the strongman outfit he got yeah. at the farm. So he so, he okay. he came up because that's his workout clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you go back, that's what he worked out in. So he got the rope they used to swing down on, the cape and the mask. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, I read that wrong. I was reading that yeah. as he got the cape and the mask at the farm. It's like, what were you guys doing? Wait, I I think I already know. <clears throat> but okay, so. He comes in, he beats up more people, and then he leaves without revealing himself to the woman that he supposedly loves. It's just so far out of the way to do it like this. Really, on that page, he should suck Biff right in the jaw and mm-hmm. walk out and say, fine, you want to be with this this creep? Go ahead, Mary, I'll be outside. Like, on the surface, it's a fine, kind of fun story, but it is one of those things where the more you look at it, it's like, I question every decision this character makes. Every single one. (laughs) He's less upset that 
Mary is just kind of blowing him off than when Joe decides to leave where he's crying his eyes out. Well, I, I think one of them he loved and the other one less. Looked good in a dress. Right. <laughs> and, and at the end, yeah, just the last page, we have this montage of him working with the Justice Society and we've got images of Nuclon and the weird, more superheroic costume that he got redesigned later on. And then this final shot of him marrying Mary. And he says, and Mary James, she grew up a bit, and I eventually married her. What else? It's like, what? Oh, okay. I get uh, it. She grew up a bit and got some really big rollers for her hair. It was like a poodle. <laughs> yeah, but th- this final page, it kind of smacks me as the end of uh, episode three, where in the last five minutes, it's, oh, crap, we have... Okay, uh, memory wipe the droids, get Luke Tatooine, adopt Leia, check, 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 check. That That's this page. It's like, uh, Roy Thomas just ran out of room. And it's like, oh, I don't have 26 pages? Damn, I got to cram all this into one. Now, that being said, I enjoyed the story. I mostly did. Yeah. I mostly enjoyed the story, except there was just so many things that just pinged my radar yeah but it, if you read through it quick this you know it's just another issue you're not doing it for a podcast you're just flipping through it <laughs> that's okay yeah that's that's all right yeah it's it's pretty forgettable really yeah, but yeah. it's when you start to analyze it. <laughs> it yeah it's just a little much yeah and but the best part about this page is that he specifically says that his superpowers didn't take hold until 1948, seven years after the majority of this story. So why is he ripping doors off? Why is he doing this super strong stuff and only later does he get the powers? It's almost like it should. I didn't realize that they had kicked in here or I didn't realize that I already had the metagene and it, this just made it more powerful or That's something. That's you get the moment where he's sort of like trashing stuff and he's kind of like breaking the furniture, but like I think really that that all seems like it's manifesting as part of his strength because of that one moment where he rips the door off the hinges. And I think that was probably something in the original story. That was mm. a detail in the original story that they didn't think about. They didn't because they weren't really anticipating anything about the story. That's just like, yeah, we're going to show that he's stronger now. That that's our test to see that this guy has been training and now he's strong enough to beat up gangsters because he can rip a door off its hinges. And they didn't think about it any more than that. But Arnold Schwarzenegger can't rip a door off its hinges <laughs> like that. Yeah. But Roy Thomas, being Roy Thomas, said, well, it was in the story, then it's Bible, and I have to include it. And it's like, mm. no, you really didn't. Unfortunately, Mark Wade was still too new as an editor, right. I think, so he couldn't really stand up to Roy Thomas, the, the Roy Thomas, and say, you know, that's kind of silly. Yeah. He was so fresh as an editor, in fact, that he left his own name off the title page. Right. The only reason I knew he edited is because of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, they left the title off the title page. The title, Secret Origin of Golden Age Adam, is not on this page. No, this story is actually untitled. Yeah. Other thoughts about the story? Uh, Nothing that we haven't already covered. I mean, the art is good. Mm -hmm. I like how it fits with it's a kind of a silly story. The art is a little bit on the goofy side, but it's really well done. You know, the layouts are good. It conveys everything it needs to convey and sometimes more. I don't know if I would have a different opinion if I read the original origin or not. 
but it's like I said, it's all right. I like it, but it's not stupendous. It's something that I'm probably going to forget when I read my next comic. Mm-hmm. You know, just go right out of my head. It's one of those things where I, I like the idea of this guy because I like that he fits into that just street fighter type of idea that that classic just I'm a, I'm a strong man it's sort of the one of the things i love about wildcat is he's just a boxer that's mm-hmm. his thing and he's like i can use this talent to clean up my neighborhood to clean up the city to clean up crime and adam could have been doing that same thing he could have been a wrestler or a fighter he could have brought that element instead of making him this i mean he could have just been sort of accidentally short but he still could have been in college on a wrestling scholarship and gotten a little bit stronger and kind of and, and that's that's another failing of this story is I get to it and I'm like, why did he put on the costume? Yeah. It, I, there's there's no reason. Right. In the in the story there is no reason for him to dress up like a superhero. Right. He's there when the girl needs him and he's able to beat them up and save her in his suit and tie. Right. Never needed to put on the costume. And there's not really an explanation for why he does it the next time when they're at the ball. He, there's no reason for him to conceal his identity. So it's just a costume, and there's not there's like a disconnect between who this guy is and what his character is. And it's, yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that we don't get any mention of other heroes other than, oh, Joe trained these people. You know, if he had been reading the paper and saw... The exploits of the Guardian and the Sandman and the Flash and Green Lantern and looked at it and said, I could do this. I've got the strength. I've got the training. All I need is, you know, a mask. Now, I I could be one of these mystery men. Yeah, especially because Roy had already built that into the foundation of some of the other Golden Age retellings that he had done. Exactly. The the Hour Man specifically points out he's walking by and he's looking at the newspaper and he's seeing all of these other heroes. And that is part of what his inspiration is. If there had been any sort of name check or reference to that effect. Yeah, even just a narration box. Yeah. You don't have to show it. Just tell me while he was doing his training, he had heard about the exploits of the Flash or has heard about the Guardian appearing or just something. Right. Or, you know, they saw the Sandman fighting the Phantom of the Fair on television or something. Right. Yeah, any of that. But so... A flawed story. Mostly, if you, if you, like you said, if you read through this quickly and if you don't think about it, it's fine and it's kind of fun. But it doesn't hold up to very much scrutiny, if any. Right. So, and this is also a story that I would have. Once I thought about the homosexual angle, I couldn't not think about that, and I was like. <laughs> You know what? If they had actually done something with that, if they had been allowed to do anything with that angle. It would have given this character an element and a dynamic that would have made him more interesting. Oh yeah, to this character. That if I mean, a, a closeted is... homosexual man in 1940. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a lot of pathos right there. Right, right, and unfortunately, I mean, he was largely a forgettable character. But I mean, if you could, they could have done something with that with the New 52 Earth 2. But again, <laughs> they got they got to Alan Scott first. Well, Gay Green Lantern is a better headline than Gay Adam. Well, speaking of that, I mentioned that I did want to talk about the name Adam. Yes. Because that might be my biggest problem with this character. <laughs> um, and when you think of all of the the analogs of the Golden Age and the Silver Age characters, you got the Green Lantern and Green Lantern, uh, two Flashes, two Hawkmans, 
and you've got these two atoms. And this was actually a joke that Bob Rosakis played with in that Whatever Happened to the Golden Age Atom story that I mentioned from mm-hmm. DC Comics Presents number 30. Why are they both called Atom? They're nothing alike. And I agree, and I, I think that Atom is sort of an, a weird name for this character because the Atom, that word, seems so Silver Age-y. Because that was the atomic age. That was after we dropped the bomb. That was an age of science, where we kind of knew what this power was. Yes, the atoms, they had been discovered in the 1800s. That's what scientists... Mm-hmm. But they, you don't think of that kind of atomic power in 1940 or 39. To have him be called the atom just because he's short really feels like you could have given him any other name. Yeah, really. Doll, yes, but... Doll Man, for example, would have <laughs> but, So, like, what I liken to, like, this would be similar to, like, say, Cyborg from the New Teen Titans. Say if Cyborg was created in 1970 instead of 1980. Mm. And he was still called Cyborg, but he was created in 1970, uh, and his powers was just heat vision. Yeah, but... it's it's definitely along those lines. It's, we're just gonna pick a random name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... They were probably going through as, okay, we have the Flash, we have the <laughs> Hawkman, we have the Batman. Let's put something that we can have a definitive article on and just flip through the dictionary. Okay, Adam. It's the first one they came to. Okay, we'll call him the Adam. Why? He's short. Okay, run with it. I don't know. Maybe there's a reason these guys didn't create any other characters. Hey, if they had been Canadian and they saw a short fighter character, they might have named him the Wolverine. Uh, Um, same color scheme (laughs) actually yes (laughs) did you like when you mentioned earlier that you were reading JSA did you like like his legacy characters Adam Smasher and uh, and Damage Damage not so much Damage always seemed a little whiny to me but I never read his his own title so, I mean, I knew about the explosion, why he wasn't allowed, it, I think, in Georgia anymore or something. Mm-hmm. But Adam Smasher, I really liked, especially when they went through the thing with his mother mm-hmm. and how Extant ended up killing his mother and he wanted nothing but revenge on Extant to the point where he ended up getting the revenge and saving his mom all in one swoop. And that guy kind of kicked out of the JSA. Right. But I never read any Infinity Incorporated beyond, I think, the first three issues. So I didn't have a lot of experience with Al Rothstein before mm-hmm. he became Adam Smasher. But once once they got a hold of him in JSA, I thought he was a really good character. Yeah, I I did like him in JSA when he was Adam Smasher. I, I liked the rage. I liked the anger that was in him that he kept... Th- like channeling about his his quest for vengeance, and I liked why that made him sympathetic towards Black Adam in that whole uh, Kondak storyline, that, that mm-hmm. whole saga that eventually sort of culminated with uh, with Fifty Two. Other quick thoughts. Um... I mean, he, the character, like you said, is a founding member of the Justice Society, so he deserves some respect in that area but i would have to go back into his older adventures just to see what there is there it's a strong man who decides i'm gonna fight crime he doesn't need a huge tragedy he doesn't need special powers he just says i'm gonna go do this beyond that though 
and the horrible second costume, there's really not much that's hugely memorable about him. Right. I usually do recommended readings, but I don't really know. I mean, you can go back and find some of his uh, his original stories from the uh, All-Star comics in the archive editions. I know there's like a an archive edition of JSA All-Stars. I think that's what it's called, the JSA All-Star Archives. There's one volume, and it collects some of his first appearances from All-American. It's also got the first appearances of characters like Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, Mr. Terrific, and Johnny Thunder, I think. Yeah, I mean, beyond that, I would only I would say go back to the beginning of All-Star Squadron, mm-hmm. which is available digitally, yep. and read through those, because those are are very good as far as uh, storytelling goes, even though they are not necessarily Adam-centric. Mm-hmm. Actually, at the time that this episode goes live, there will still be a current sale at Comixology for almost all of their JSA-related books, including some of those old All-Star comics and All-Star Squadron issues. You can- yeah, that's how, that's how I got them, is yeah. they had a 99-cent sale, I guess it was about a year or so ago. Yep. And I had been listening to Tales of the JSA at the time, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, All-Star Squadron on sale. Okay, I can spend 20 bucks. <laughs> Give me. <laughs> yeah, there's another sale going on right now that'll probably be up for a few days after this episode comes out. So, All right, well, Gene, thank you very much for being on Secret Origins Podcast again. Where can our listeners hear more from you? Well, the easiest place to find me would be at thehammerstrikes.com, which is my blog, which I update every Thursday. And usually some type of weird geekiness, although the one that's coming out this Thursday, uh, last Thursday to you listening to this, is going to be about uh, me doing my first 5K. Not exactly geeky, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, if you want to hear my voice, you just head on over to twotruefreaks.com where I have uh, my shows are The Hammer Podcast, which is just me on my own or sometimes with a guest. The Quantum Cast, where my good friend Jeff Fisherman and I talk about the protector of the universe, Quasar. Yes, Quasar. <laughs> Look him up. Also under that feed and coming out very, very shortly uh, will be a new episode of Comic Book Fight Club in which a uh, certain host of this show will be guest starring, even though we recorded it two months ago and I just got around to editing it. I thought that was a fever dream. I really didn't think I was on that show. (laughs) It was a shared fever dream then, but I got a recording of it. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Uh, and you can also find me doing Anime Freaks with Dr. Bill Robinson, where we are currently on the way to wrapping up the first season of Star Blazers, which is one of our favorite anime imports from our childhood. Nice, nice. I think that's everything. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations on running the 5K. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm still sore, but it was it was a good time. I'm sore from just imagining it. So. <laughs> Trust me, if if you had asked me two years ago if I was going to do that, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> but I've I've caught the bug, apparently. In fact, uh, Jeff and I are planning on doing one in South Jersey in April, which is an 80s-themed 5K. So, like Miami Vice jackets, or...? Well, actually, if we get a bunch of our friends together to do it with us, we're going to go as uh, 80s wrestlers. Nice. 
cool. They've proposed me for Sergeant Slaughter for some reason. Mm. I don't know, maybe because I can say Eddie's disease. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on, Ryan. I, I know it's tough working around my schedule currently, but it was a really, really fun time. No, I was glad to have you back, and thank you again. Two quick notes before getting to listener feedback. First, the Secret Origins podcast wishes a very happy 75th birthday to Roy Thomas. Although we, mostly me, can be pretty critical of him on this show at times, his career is legendary, and this show simply would not exist without him. 1940 was a landmark year for comic book origins, and Roy Thomas is yet another giant on that list. And second, folks, I wasn't just talking up the Legion of Superheroes for Martin's benefit. I really have been digging on these stories since I started reading the Great Darkness Saga. It's just working on me in a way that previous Legion comics didn't. I'm loving the concept and the spirit of the Legion. What I'm still wrapping my head around is all of the characters, not just their identities and their power sets, but what really makes them tick. And here is where you can do some of my homework for me. If you're a fan of the Legion, leave me a note in the comments section or message me and tell me who is your favorite Legionnaire and why. I'll be interested to see in what you come up with. Okay, let's get to the listener feedback from the last two episodes. Over on Twitter, Cash Flag wrote, Finally able to start listening to Secret Origins, really enjoying the show. Well, if you stick with it for another two dozen episodes, you can hear me say thank you. I appreciate that. Episodes 23 and 24 received Twitter likes, mentions, and retweets from The 108th Sage, Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Cash Flag, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Craig 101, Diablo Frank, Dr. G, Nerdologist, The Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Future Man, a.k.a. Mike, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jay Babos, Jeffrey Brown, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, The Lantern Cast, Luis, Michael Wagner, Paul Scavito, Quantum Multiverse, Radio vs. the Martians, Reading Hicks, The Shazam Cast, Siskoid, Sin, Too Dangerous, Trekker Talk, Waiting for Doom, and Willie Yarbrough. On Facebook, new likes, shares, and mentions came from Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Chad Bokelman, Clinton Robison, Comic Reflections, David Super Dave Rothschiller, Dean Compton, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jared West, Jimmy McGlinchey, Keith G. Baker, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Russell Robinson, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Trekker Talk, Van Z, and Victor Wachter. The WordPress site has received follows from Council of Geeks, Eben Storm, Nicholas Prom, and Rob B. As always, it's possible I left somebody off these lists unintentionally. Drop me a line and I'll make sure that you get a shout out next time. 
Over the last couple of weeks, Siskoid and Diablo Frank have been playing catch-up on the series, leaving comments on older episodes. I don't often go back and read those comments on the show, but I have been reading them as they've been posted, and they're always enjoyable. Siskoid and Frank both bring tons of insight and personality to their own comics reviews, and I love hearing what they have to say about these issues. Okay, on to the comments from episode 23. That was where Chad and Mark helped me cover the Guardians of the Universe, and Frank joined me on the Floronic Man segment. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water podcast said, You guys certainly did your best to bring enthusiasm to stories no one was enthusiastic about. He then said, I would love to see the sales figures for the Secret Origins series. They must have varied wildly from issue to issue. I never thought about that, but yeah, I'm sure the series had plenty of dedicated followers who picked up every issue, but as many, if not more, would have checked out the issues based on the characters or the talent involved. That would be an interesting look at what was in great demand in the 80s. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial podcast said, Like most people who fall somewhere between the casual and hardcore comic reading audience, I know Floronic Man from Swamp Thing and really liked his use there. The whole other dimension aspect to his origin just doesn't work, and I agree that they really should not have tried to force Plantmaster and Floronic Man to be the same person, and Crisis gave the perfect opportunity to correct that. Floronic Man's whole deal is his deep-seated connection to the Earth, so the idea that he's not even from Earth flies in the face of that. I did know a little bit about what's been done with him in the more recent times, like with the Super Pot thing, and now being called the Cedar, winning first prize in the we-won't-even-have-to-change-the-character's-name-when-we-do-a-porn-parody competition, narrowly beating out the Shocker. Uh, there were a couple of comments across social media about the name Cedar. Someone poked out that it sounded phonetically like Cedar, the type of wood, and I think the best I saw was somebody said it reminded him of a Seder in Passover. Chad Bokelman, from the Lantern cast, came back for the comments and dropped some info about the Guardians, as if he didn't say enough on the episode. He delineated some of the Guardians' major decisions over the last 20 years, and how those have had major repercussions over the DC Universe since then. I'm not going to read them, but you can see his comment on the website. It's pretty impressive how much they've shaped the events over the last couple of decades, whether by design or accident. Uh, Then Chad talked about not liking Floronic Man at all, but enjoying my talk about the character with Frank. So kudos to Frank and his persistence in making me feel inadequate in my comics knowledge, Chad said. There's a joke about inadequacy there, but I'm not even going to reach for it. I'll leave that for Shag to pick up. Jeff Nettleton, who, if you liked his two appearances on this podcast, check out the Veterans Day episode of Professor Allen's Quarterbin podcast. It's episode 62. The professor has three former enlisted men from the podcasting sphere as his guests, and one of them is our own Jeff Nettleton. Our own. Check me out, sounding so possessive of my guests. Jeff said, I'm old and can remember when continuity wasn't God at DC, and everything didn't need to connect to everything else. Sometimes that worked pretty well. Characters didn't have to be related. We didn't have complex manipulations of massive family trees. You just got on with the story. Sometimes that works a lot better. Some books had more continuity than others, and that was cool. With something like Legion of Superheroes, where they were mostly playing in their own sandbox, it worked pretty well. I'm not a fan of the post-crisis singular Earth, though I like a ton of the post-crisis comics. I always felt a lot was lost, especially with Earth 2. 
However, I also felt that if DC was going to erase the slate with Crisis, they should have started all of their books from square one, like they did after Flashpoint, though the post-Crisis DC of 1986 to 1989 was a heck of a lot better than the New 52. It certainly would have saved a lot of bother in Hawkman and more than a bit with Green Lantern and Justice League. The event crossovers that follow Crisis really convinced me that they should have just started over and this issue kind of rams it home for me. Uh, I agree with you, Jeff, and I think that if you're going to reboot the entire line, then it needs to be a hard reboot. Kill your darlings. The problem with the post-Flashpoint is that DC was unwilling to scrap all of Jeff Johns' Green Lantern material in Grant Morrison's Batman saga, while those writers still had, like, two more years of stories to tell. So DC tells us the new universe is only five years old, except some of the heroes still have 70 years' worth of history. Fail. Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast Waiting for Doom said, The Floronic Man story has more going for it than Ryan or Frank give it credit. In the post-crisis environment and the style of delivery, there's a very valid interpretation of the story as being the ramblings of a delusional man. This is a mad scientist who destroyed his own physical humanity with a formula. If you put the story through the filter of Jason Woodrow being a homo sapien nut job, then it becomes a more subversive work by Rick Veach. The writer is saying goodbye to the character for Swamp Thing purposes and showing that he is a poison pill for the Guardians. It was a pity this was never explored as a terrible misjudgment by the selection committee in New Guardians. It could have been an examination of there being far more than genetics to make someone right for evolutionary elevation. It is certainly evident in his return to crazy after the 80s. I also really liked the Killer Croc entry and exit into the subject. Yes, it could have been reduced, but excising it would make the story less unique and much more conventional, as was the tradition with Secret Origins at this point. I also enjoyed the inclusion of Arkham Asylum, which, unlike present day, was not the setting for every third page of a Batman book at this point in time. Uh, all of those elements sound great when you describe them, Paul, but that wasn't what I got from reading the story, so failure to connect on some level. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, and who appeared recently on the aforementioned Waiting for Doom podcast and the most recent Fire and Water podcast, said, It shows the cynicism of the world that the peace-loving guardians who are looked upon as the ultimate heroes and conscience of the universe in their early days have now become controlling evil fascists. Sort of sad. I completely agree that making them evil makes the Green Lantern Corps evil by extension. And Ange goes on, That panel recounting Crisis is hysterical. Hal in his flight suit fighting Goldface. Nothing says the Crisis more than that. Yeah, I thought the character looked like the key, but everyone says it's Goldface. Uh, but yeah, when you think of the Crisis on Infinite Earths, I'm sure everyone thinks of out-of-costume Hal Jordan and Chip fighting Goldface and the Shark. What else would you expect from the end of the multiverse? Speaking of which, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast just did an episode where he and the Irredeemable Shag talked about the crisis and whether it was necessary or not. Check that out over on the Supermates podcast. Chris shed some light on Jonathan Peterson, who drew the origin of the Guardians and not much else. Chris said Peterson was already an editor at DC. He may have been an assistant at this point, but he eventually becomes editor of the new Titans title and gives that book a much-needed shot in the arm, right around the Titans hunt era. He unfortunately left staff before all the major plot lines came to fruition, and a succession of editors squashed all the goodwill and excitement he had built up for the title. 
Now that I know this is Jonathan Peterson, editor, I can understand the somewhat not-ready-for-prime-time artwork. I think Alve saves the day on this one. He'll go on to ink Titans under editor Peterson. Alve saves the day. Chris adds, When I picked this one up, I was much more interested in Killer Croc than Floronic Man. Croc had been royally screwed by the post-crisis revision to Jason's Todd origin, which erased Croc's murder of Jason's parents, and thus his motivation to become Robin. Uh, yeah, sadly, Killer Croc peaked early and has been devolving literally and figuratively over the last 30 years. Jeff R. said, I'm pretty sure that issue of Swamp Thing was originally written as an official Millennium crossover, but that they decided to back off on letting the mature reader's book join in. A few years later, it would be okay for Invasion to cross over with the same book, though. A whole lot of people chimed in on what they thought was the worst line-wide event at DC. Interesting arguments for and against in the comments if you want to check those out. And that brings us up to Last Issue, starring Blue Devil and Dr. Fate. There were two recurring comments that came up a lot. The first concerned the passing of our friend David Sopko. A lot of you expressed your condolences on the comments, on Facebook, and on Twitter. A few of you sent me private messages. I appreciate it all. Of course, I wish it wasn't necessary, but all of your comments about David reinforced my belief that he was a wonderful guy and we're sad to have lost him. The other thing that popped up, which is trivial by comparison, but then again, what isn't trivial compared to death, uh, but that is the questionable existence of the Showcase Presents Blue Devil collection. It had been solicited on Amazon for a while, and then the listing was taken down. It popped up again a couple of months ago, but now it's gone again. All of this suggests that DC has no plans to publish the collection within the next couple of months, which is a shame. You might have to scrounge around for the old floppy copies at your local comic book store. Otherwise, harass DC and ask them to release the book in trade or make it available digitally on Comixology or another platform. Hopefully, they'll find a way to re-release the series because everyone who read it absolutely loves it, especially the first annual, the Summer Fun issue. That sounds like a blast from everything I hear. Okay, as for your comments, Nathaniel Wayne said, And so many DC fans have been telling me, Oh, you know the 90s stuff you look at wouldn't all be so bad if you had more DC comics. I guess they just have selective memory when it comes to Dr. Fate. I'm glad you and Rob... I'm glad you and Rob went over that convoluted history so thoroughly, because it shows that as much as I like the guy's look, I'll never care enough to sort through all that mess. Yeah, the 90s Fate series is available on Comixology, by the way. Make sense of that, if you can. Nathaniel added, Blue Devil sounds interesting, and like the sort of thing that might work for me, so I may need to check that out. Rob Kelly said, regarding the cover, why is Dr. Fate trapping Blue Devil? Or is he trying to free them? Anyone have any idea why these two were paired up? Was it just a blue and gold thing? Uh, blue and gold, and also the supernatural elements. You know, these two could have been fighting monsters or demons on the cover like Adam Strange and Dr. Occult did on the cover to issue 17. That shared enemy could have put Blue Devil and Dr. Fate in the same shared space, but then it probably would have looked too similar to issue 17. And I actually, I like the idea of this cover and how different it is. Chris Franklin said, Shag crammed 10 years of Dr. Fate podcasting into one episode, but I didn't mind because I love me some classic Dr. Fate. I did indeed bemoan the fact that DC refuses to give us the real Dr. Fate in any meaningful, mini, or ongoing. It's been so long since Kent Nelson was Fate, that would be a new thing for DC to try. 
I like Michael Bear's stuff, but it's a little too ornate and distracting. The eye wanders and passes over some nice illustration just because the layouts are too busy. Again, I'm sort of in this mindset where I don't know if it matters who is beneath the helmet because from my experience it hasn't mattered that much. Sometimes it feels like Kent died in that tomb with his father and Dr. Fate is just walking around in his body. That said, after we recorded, I got a chance to read the first issue special that Shag praised, and that is indeed an awesome story. Easily the best Dr. Fate tale I've ever read. Martin Gray said, I never liked Blue Devil's original costume much, the shorts were just terrible, and that facial hair, Damon Mutton Chops, was a tad Klingon, and the shade of blue was kind of wishy-washy. But I like his original look a million times more than the ornate horned demon guy. I think Shadow Pact had my favorite style. The t-shirt and jeans seem what a practical guy would wear. Martin then added, This is my favorite Shag podcast appearance ever. He was so knowledgeable in running through the Doctor's fate and somehow managed to resist terrible Naboo Naboo references. The scary thing was, every one of Shag's opinions was dead on, with the nearest to wrong being his failure to praise the Bill Loeb's run with Inza filling the helmet to the skies. Shag did praise that book, but not enough for Martin's taste, apparently. Uh, Martin also provided a couple of links to other websites and blogs that talk about Dr. Fate's appearances and changing look over the years. And he concludes with, Anks for the memories. Terrible, Martin. You're never getting on this show again. Jeff Nettleton said of the Blue Devil origin, This was a great little story with a nice touch by having Kane tell us the tale. Plus, given the timing, that must be one of the very early Calvin and Hobbes homages. His first book had just come out six months before this, which helped boost the character's profile and circulation. And Jeff added that Calvin and Hobbes celebrated its 30th anniversary. Wow. Ange says, the only early Blue Devil stuff I had included the two Crisis tie-ins and the Firestorm crossover. Those were the years where Ange was discovering Watchmen, American Flag, and Swamp Thing. I was veering towards mature comics, and so I left the sillier, brighter stuff behind. It is only with the wisdom of age that I realized that I missed out on a ton of great stuff. As for the Dr. Fate story, I thought, like many Golden Age origins, it felt a bit heavy, including some early adventures instead of just concentrating on the origin. I thought Michael Bear's art was beautiful, and in my head, I thought the rectangularness of the art was evocative of the Golden Age books, where page layouts were pretty simple. Different opinions. Uh, I really like Bear's pencils, but the layouts and the hyper-detail kind of turned me off on this one, like I said. Jeff R. said, If you're only going to read one Blue Devil story, it should be the Summer Fun Annual number 1. This can be said of any character in it as well. If you're only going to read one Creeper story, Man Bat story, Phantom Stranger story, Black Orchid story, or Demon story, read that. It's probably the single most underrated comic of our lifetimes. I definitely want to go read it now. Uh, Then Jeff R. changed tone and said, Dr. Fate, well... It's a common fallacy to assume that the existence of a problem implies the existence of a solution. There are insoluble problems, and a problem that has been attacked by talented people for nearly a century is likely to be one of them. Making Dr. Fate interesting is one of those problems. Just based on that, it's time to give up on this character. But there's a more compelling reason to do so, and that is the Lords of Order and Chaos. These are a plague on DC Comics, a piece of infectious narrative poison that destroys the readability of any story or character they come into contact with. And Dr. Fate is patient zero. In a better parallel universe, Dr. Fate was replaced by Etrigan in this issue. 
Well, I don't share Jeff's hate for the Lords, but I'd trade half the characters in the series if we had gotten a good Etrigan story. Michael Chiaroscuro echoed something that a lot of people mentioned, that Blue Devil came out at the time when DC was starting to get serious with their books, and so Michael and Ange and Jeff and others missed out on Blue Devil the first time around because it was so light and fun, and that wasn't what people wanted at the time. Michael added, I really enjoy the Templeton art in this issue, but I agree that Paris Cullens is the definitive Blue Devil artist. I can see the house ads for that series in my head. Lord, why didn't I collect it then? Oh right, youthful hubris. Paul Hicks said, pleased to hear the Shazam audio gag is still in play. You're welcome for that, Paul. And finally, Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of Geekery and the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast finally caught up and said, Dr. Fate is the character that made me buy All-Star Squadron and stick with it. It was the secret origin issue which makes sense of one of my favorite Dr. Fate iterations, the half-helmet character that couldn't throw spells around and didn't talk to Naboo. He was afraid of the mental takeover, and this allowed us to know and care for Kent Nelson himself. The Superpowers action figure soon entered my collection. I still have him, and he's my very favorite. Always has been. That is a great figure. Well, folks, that about wraps things up for episode 25 of the Secret Origins podcast, which is going to serve as our mid-season finale of sorts. I didn't really plan for a cliffhanger, but let's say Diablo Frank is trapped on a boat with a bomb. Come back in the spring and see what happens. Uh, But seriously, folks, this show is going to go on a temporary hiatus while I recharge my creative juices and work on a couple of other projects. The show will return in 2016, most likely in February. I am really excited for the next phase of this podcast. There are tons of great stories waiting to be retold and lots of new guests waiting in the wings. Some returning favorites and some first-timers. We've got two more annuals and an all-villain special. We've got covers by Dave Cockrum, Brian Boland, and Mike Mignola. And we've got stories by Alan Brenner, Neil Gaiman, and Grant Morrison. And did someone say Justice League International? I hope you're carbo-loading during this holiday season, because you're going to need that strength for the non-stop action and thrills that will make up the second half of the Secret Origins podcast. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandealy01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com, and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and long live the Legion. No! Oh.